Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Okay, here we are, part three of our conversation with David Reardon. Can we pull it together and save our democracy and create a country where we all win? Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. So, so if, if that's the truth, and developmentally we see each of these level, traditional, modern, postmodern, seeing completely different worlds and and different values is there any ground for coming together and 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 having some narrative that creates a connective tissue between these different levels that see the world very very differently so that we can hang in there and compromise and get through these very difficult times well what you know you guys are both familiar with mediation right the mediation process, but, you know, Diane is an expert in that and all the rest sure. of it. Well, well, what happens in a mediation process, right? I mean, I, this is going to be a little simplistic, but I'll just cut to the chase. The real question you're asking both sides is what are you willing to live with? That's what you're asking. Mm-hmm. What are you willing to live with? Is there any common ground? Like you said, John, is there, because sometimes there's not. Sometimes the stories are so violently different that a mediator will say, I've done my best, but there just is, there's no way forward here. There's no common ground between these, right? But if you ask the question, mostly for people, still my belief, maybe I'm being a little um, hopeful, but I like to hold <laughs> on to this. Oh, you got to look for something somewhere to hang yeah, on. Yeah, is that ultimately, as I said, and I keep going back to the, just because it's one measure, that 65 to 70% of people that show up in the polls, right? As saying, these are the basic tenets of democracy that we want this country to continue to exist on. Now, we disagree about how we get there on some of these things, but that's okay as long as the conversation is within those guardrails, right? But if one side or the other or both sides are simply saying we're not going to accept the results of the people speaking through a voting and election process anymore, then you would say then a democratic system is challenged, right? And so... It's interesting when you look at why democracies fail, you know, which there has been a considerable amount of writing about this for the since 2016, right? And some of it is worldwide because this isn't just a thing that is happening in the United States. Democracies, after enjoying a period of our lifetime being, you know, fairly healthy worldwide, are now being challenged left and right, right? By what? By more autocratic systems. Well, why would anybody agree to that? Because generally what happens is the democracy and all the things that go with it about the way we make decisions is incredibly messy and it's incredibly slow. So if you're faced with gas prices at $10 a gallon, and what that means is you can't drive to work to earn a living. I'm being a little exaggerated, but, you know, this is part of the conversation going on about inflation right now. You're not going to be what you want is just somebody to fix it. You don't want to have a conversation with the people on the other side, <laughs> right? You know, just no, just fix it. I just need it to be lower so I can go do what I'm going to do. And so I am susceptible to a strong voice on either side of the aisle, basically saying, if you'll just give me your trust and your loyalty, I will fix it for you. That is the nature of autocratic systems that ultimately when democracies break down, that's where they go because the democracy can no longer address the challenges that are right in front of it. 
And even though people will say they would, you know, they would love their freedom and all the rest of it, they're desperate to a certain extent that they're willing to hand off their loyalty to someone that will fix it, even though it means that the regulations that govern their lives are going to be much more stringent, right? They're willing to do that. And historically, that's what happens. I mean, democracies are hard to maintain because ultimately conditions come that they can't solve. And then ultimately some more centralized, you know, strong person will come in and say, if you just trust me, I'll fix it, which is basically Trump's, you know, story, right? Just trust me. What, what's the most important thing to him? Loyalty. He doesn't care about competence. He doesn't care about whether you have good ideas. He just cares that you, one, are loyal to him, and two, you give him money when he asks. Well, you know, you know? one of the, the meta problems, and I think we used that conversation earlier, Roger, is, and I've seen this for 20 years, is that these massive migrations into first world countries of people yep. that come from third world countries. Yep. And they share different values, different languages. They're at a different developmental level. And I said many years ago, we don't get a handle on this and figure out how to do this responsibly and not only take the, the feelings of the people that want to come here for a better life, which is completely understandable, for the people that already are here and if you very threatened by it, we're going to see a rise of neo-Nazism and everything we've seen in Poland and Hungary and Sweden and the United States. And people don't feel that progressives have the balls or the have can do anything about it. They won't. And so they go for the, the 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 side that promotes their, in some cases, justified fears. And and so that's it's that's one of the huge threats. Can we our our post-post progressives come up with an answer that that satisfies of the need of people, whether it's going in and helping these people have, you know, stable economies so they can stay home if they want to, or how do we bring them in to this, our, our cultures that are pre-existent and have them be a part of it and not be a threat to it? And I, I'm not, I don't know the answers, but I know these are issues. Well, John, nobody knows the answer. That's the, that, that's the concerning thing, right? Is that, again, when you look back historically, when Democrat democracies falter, like it did in China in the 20s, you know, prior to the communists taking, winning that civil war, right? As it did in a variety of places, certainly Germany was, you know, before the Second World War, Italy, all the rest of it. Why in the world did they turn their lives over to what we then saw as maniacs, basically? That, right? And that is because the, the, the system that was in place either couldn't solve the problems or didn't know how to solve the problems or whatever. And anytime that we're faced with that, if I come to you guys and say, look, I need a solution to this problem. And you say, I'll tell you what, we're going to put a committee together and we'll get back to you in six months with some suggestions. If if, if that concern of mine is on the plate, guess what I do? <laughs> I'm not I'm going to wait six months. Whether Are you going to have another commission to come back and tell me what I already know? You're not going to fix this because that's what I need you to do. I just need you to fix it, right? So I'll go looking for somebody else. Right? And, and David, you spoke to the to the frailties of democracy that are inherent in it, and and one of them is clearly, if we look historically, way back to well, Greek uh, democracy, is the they're, they're susceptible to demagogues, the people who are willing to to use uh, divisive arguments, are willing to scapegoat minorities, who are willing to, to uh, create fictions of a, you know, a golden era in the past, etc. And uh, pretty, can be pretty unethical about, you know, about the truth and other things too. And once they, and the pattern, once demagogues get into power, is to really consolidate their power and make it very hard for them to get out. And we've, we've just seen what seems like a, a very strong example of that recently with President Trump. Do you, do you see anything from your analyses or your perspective about, about this and the challenges that raises? Yes and no. I mean, I, I won't say <laughs> okay. no. And I, I mean, this is where most of us are, right? It's It's like, yes, and particularly those of us, you know, that have been through integral training that has a particular perspective about how you sort this cultural conversation out, right, into stages and states and whatever, lines of intelligence and so on. And it's not the only way. It's just 
for me, when I met Ken, it was, you know, a powerful part. It changed my life, right? Now, it's not, there are a lot of people that talk about models that, you know, mimic integral in some sort of ways that are talking about this transition to a culture that is more, and this is the word you've heard me use over the years, that is more generative as, a, as, a, as opposed to extractive, right? So you can make an argument right now that capitalism has blown through its own guardrails. And that when you look at the concentration of wealth since the Second World War, that when you see um, more and more of the wealth that's being created in this country being controlled by less and less of the population, which for right now, it's about 0.5%. It's not even 1% anymore, right? When you look at the wealth that is controlled by folks that are in that 0.5% versus the other 995 you say when you look historically, generally when those conditions happen, it doesn't turn out well for anybody. For whatever reason, the folks in charge with that kind of money are, are blind to the fact that people are starting to light the torches and getting so desperate that they're going to come over the walls of their safe community and basically make a change violently, as an example, right? And the folks on the outside looking in saying, I don't really want to do this, but I'm so they're never going to listen unless we just take them out. So we, we need to do this. And that actually, when you look at history, is the majority of human activity as opposed to democracies where it was decided in the ways that democracies do, which is everybody gets to vote and, you know, the majority leads you to where they're supposed to go. Right. So we're arguing against history here. I mean, ultimately, unfortunately, when we say, is democracy going to survive, or I will put it this way, not survive, thrive, because it needs to evolve on its own to meet these new challenges, mm -hmm. that we would not be having these problems if it was doing so well, right? I mean, if you guys watched the uh, Trump speech <laughs> I did through the whole thing, and he basically, he basically told a story that in 2020, the United States was incredibly healthy, abundant people of all colors and races, he said, were doing much better, that the, we were respected in the world when I left office. And I just wanted to raise my hand and say, if everything, if that's true, why did they vote you out of office? I mean, obviously, it doesn't make any sense, right? But that's... His answer would be they didn't. It, it was stolen. Well, and that's why he went to it, right? Because he said that can't possibly be happening because that's... Speaking of stories... <laughs> that's my story is that i left this country he said literally said these words i left this country in such great shape and all biden and the democrats had to do was just follow what i did and everything would be great <laughs> well now we got the maga thing sorted out it's when he was last president that's yeah. when we were great yeah okay yeah well and so so i i do think that so let me just do this because i know we're getting a little short on time the thing we haven't talked about, because we we tend to look at the polarization question because that's what's rearing its head. And you're saying, how can people be so unreasonable and so nasty to each other? What happened to Americans, you know, generally agreeing to disagree, but basically not demonizing, you know, the other force? What happened to that? Right. Anyway, however we feel about it. But but underlying that level of inquiry are two others. Right which have been going on even prior to Trump being elected in 2016 and questions about democracy starting to surface. And you guys know what these are. One is the United States is going through a transition from a white dominated culture in terms of what gets decided and who gets to do what, right? To a multicultural population, right? That rightly <laughs> says, if America is this, we need to be included in that, right? And that's that, regardless of what anybody says or votes or whatever, that transition is happening anyway, just based on population alone, right? Regardless of whether it's progressive or, you know, uh, conservative. And the real question, unfortunately, is when we look back at history, is we've seen these transitions before. The real question is, can you do that kind of cultural transition with a totally different set of values peacefully? And generally, the historical answer is no. 
generally, it the culture does not find a way to re-up or evolve its its you know what it's based on and how it tells a story about what it is to include the new idea, and that ultimately, like we did with the Civil War, you know, the issue of slavery, which was one of the ones we fought a war over, ultimately forces go to war, and that's why people are saying which sounded crazy five years ago, that we could have a civil war in the United States. And I'm going, it's not so crazy when you look at all of the demographics and the whatever, right? So it so that's one thing. That's one thing that's happening. The other thing that's happening, which I mentioned briefly, but drives a lot of this, is that we are in a period where, as I said before, the wealth that is being created within the culture is being consolidated into less than 0.5 of the population, right? So when you look at who did well over the last 20 years, you will see the billionaires. I mean, this is simple, but I just it's enough true that we can talk about it. The billionaires and all that, their net worth went zooming off the charts, even within COVID, right? Whereas the incomes of middle class on down either stayed stagnant or lessened, right? At the same period. And so ultimately, we know historically that won't stand. People will get desperate enough to be able to buy food, buy gas, take care of their kids, whatever, that if they feel that they're getting the short end of the stick from rich people who have now basically walled themselves off in whatever their comfortable communities are, they're eventually going to take action if it's that, if, you know, if it gets that serious. Because who wouldn't? I mean, right? At some point, if somebody's pushing you far enough, you're going to say the only way to change this is to get rid of you or something. It's that case. So in addition to the polarization, you have both of those things happening as well. And so when you look to the now and the future, you when we say we would like to see a more generative culture versus a more extractive culture, which is what we have at the moment, what we say is about those things is that we ought to have a process where the majority, that 65% of Americans actually decides which way the country's going rather than a minority on either side of the political spectrum. We want to see everybody included in that, right? That it isn't just a white American dream anymore. Make America great for white people is, is not the story that the population is expanding into. And so you would like to see that that now is going to include in a variety of ways the true nature of the American population. And then from a wealth standpoint, you would like to see a system that redistributes the wealth that's being created in this country so that it is not continuing to be concentrated in 0.5%, but is generally distributed more fully out through the entire ecosystem so that more people are taking advantage of all these great advances that we're making, right? When you, but when you say the word redistribute wealth, that is such a knee-jerk reaction by the right, even poor right-wingers. You're taking away the money from these worthy, you know, and Randian heroes that, you know, deserve it all. And you're trying to steal their money that they really earned uh, lawfully and because they're really smart and talented. And so even, even that, uh, people have been conditioned to be very, very much against even the people who probably could benefit most from that happening. How do it's, we overcome that? It's a really good point, John. So narrative, <laughs> again, yeah. we keep coming back to it. Yeah. If your narrative is the current, I'll just call it the capitalism narrative, right? Which is a, basically, if we look at it from an integral standpoint, that's a modern point of view, right? That we're going to include science, we're going to include technology, um, whatever. But one of the problems with why postmodern, at least from our view, evolved out of that was that the rules within that modern system basically said it's a winner-driven narrative. So if you figure out a way to make all the money, you deserve it. Even though the people in your community around you are suffering, you don't need to care about them because the way success is measured is that you came up with whatever you did right? And you made billions of dollars and you're allowed to do that. And, and you would say, well, there's part of that that's true. That's part of the American thing that I, 
I can create my dream. Like I was a 16 year old kid that had this notion about making a record. Right. And I did. I mean, I met a bunch of them. Right. And, and so you go, that only could happen in America, you know, whatever we say about all that. Right. It wasn't like somebody saying, well, babe, Dave's basically your middle-class kid. You don't have any access to making records. Only the rich people get that. Right. So, so in a certain sense, you know, what you're after there is a, is a distribution of the created wealth, right? So what does that mean? Well, you know, and there are like John Montgomery's just written this just new book just coming out called uh, Net Zero, which started with B Corps, right? Which basically said, look, if you want corporations to act differently and not just reward shareholders, but reward all the stakeholders that are included in their money-making proposition, then you have to change the rules of a corporation. Because right now, the rules mostly in corporations say you can be fired as a CEO or a member of the board if you're not maximizing profits for shareholders. That doesn't say anything about what effect you're having on the community, right? None. Whereas a, a, a stakeholder economy, which is what is put forth in how are we going to take capitalism, keep the main things that we like about it, which is that it encourages initiative and creativity and all that. But that ultimately the fruits of that labor are going to be spread more throughout the ecosystem. So a good example would be this. Uh, a, an entrepreneur starts a company in his garage. Right? You can think of a variety of examples. And whatever the idea they have there then suddenly becomes 10 people and they move into an office. Right? Suddenly becomes 100 people and they move into an office park. Right? And their their income is just you know, exploding. You can pick Apple, you can pick Microsoft, you can do whatever, right? And ultimately, you say, all right, now it's it has a successful idea, it's making an incredible amount of money, right? Given whatever it's selling, the brand, whatever. If the top executives, let's just say the inner circle, the original founders, and five other people, right, that were instrumental in being in that garage in making this thing happen, if the benefits of that stock price and, and also revenue go to huge salaries and packages for just the founders and the workers who are now that you have gathered, granted, you've gathered and said, hey, we're going to go do this and you guys are going to make a living at it. And the workers are ignored or just paid a minimum wage. And so the discrepancy between the amount of wealth that is being generated, that the wealth is being generated, but the majority of it, 95% of it is going to do the small group on top. And the rest of these folks are just employees that can be easily replaced if they start complaining too much, right? That's pretty simplistic, but that's what the capitalism narrative has been. And the captains of industry, particularly in the tech community, which has more of a libertarian sort of approach that they don't want to be regulated at all, right? have said, look, I had this great idea. Why shouldn't I benefit from it? And that's true. <laughs> that's true. You should. You even should take the lion's share. But if you're not basically distributing that return based on employees that are now helping you continue to grow that thing, right? Then eventually they're either going to quit, get pissed off or worse because they're not they're creating all this wealth but they're not participating in it and how do they participate well there are a variety of things stock options bonuses whatever right and and so there are ways to distribute wealth through say a corporate structure and some corporations do this that take care of everybody from the mailroom on up to the top and the discrepancy between the founders who are still making tons of money and the bottom rung that is just simply showing up every day to sort the mail is you know reasonable rather than what we see, which is like this, right? And so, so in a certain sense, that's that's what I mean by a more generative model. And you would go, and it would make sense. Shouldn't doesn't it make sense, right? Because who wants to live in a world where you have now pissed off ninety five percent of the people that have gotten now so desperate that guess what? They're coming for you. Who who wants to do that, right? You can take the majority of what you have earned and go do whatever you want. But if you don't take care of the people that, by the way, 
are helping you continue to grow that huge nut, then eventually, it, you know, the system is going to uh, collapse because the workers are eventually going to revolt. I mean, ultimately. And you're suggesting, a, uh, as you said, an alternative narrative, narrative which is more egalitarian and 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 uh, open to facing some of the realities that go with. David, we're coming towards the end of our time. I just wonder if there's anything else you would like to to say. You've been you've been very generative to say well, to coin a I, phrase. I hope I hope this has been useful. You can see what a large subject this is. So yeah. you guys may sit and simmer this down and say, you know, now, <laughs> now that we've gotten the basics out of the way, let's take a look at what's really emerging, particularly in this post-midterm process in the next year as because the 2024 elections already started, right? I mean, that's already happened. The one thing I do want to say just before I go to what people can do or why they would, you know, come see what we're doing. What I was just describing about, you know, a more generative approach to distributing wealth within countries, within corporations, whatever, right? What it requires is a is a rethinking of what success means. Because mm-hmm. yes. that's where it starts. If your narrative about success is, I had an original idea, and thus I get the lion's share of it, and screw all the people that have helped me or continue to help me, they I'll just replace them if they complain too much, and I take 95% of the bounty. Because why? Because that's my narrative about success. I get that because I was successful. And there is a certain truth to that, Right. I mean, any of us that have developed products, both of you guys have, so have I, records, TV, whatever, right? I, I mean, at a certain point, you say, well, I spent a year of my life, blood, sweat, and tears, pay, not getting paid to create this thing. And when it finally took off, I want you know a good return for that year that I spent in my garage, right? And so all of that is partially true, right? That That you do want capitalism in this particular case to reward that initiative. The question then becomes is, could you shift that narrative about success, which is basically the modern, and particularly in the tech companies narrative, which is it's a winner take all, right? You have lots of opportunity to do whatever you wanna do, but the winners take the benefit of all of that, right? Just the winners and the rest of you guys are losers, right? It's a winner loser, you know, kind of up down thing, right? Postmodern comes along and says, well, I think you ought to distribute it out. And everybody freaks out and says, well, that's communism or socialism and that. Why would anybody develop an original idea if they're just going to take everything that was generated from that and give it to all these other people? Why would they do that? Right? Anyway. So by shifting the narrative about what's success, so I'm just going to play with that really quickly here, right? Let's just say <laughs> that you had an original idea. And this is going to be a little exaggerated, but I'll make my point this way. You had an original idea, it takes off, right? And you can keep the first billion dollars of profit. You can keep it. You get it, right? And you can do anything you want with it, right? That That is your reward. And billion dollars, is, as we know, is a, it's a lot That's of money. How keep the first two billion, you know? Okay, you can make it two billion, right? All right. But everything else beyond that, right? The nature of this narrative about success is that yes, you took, you dipped into something you created and took a bunch of it for yourself and your family and your friends. And you're allowed to do that. That's, you know, just part of the way this narrative works. But you took the majority of it and either distributed it out through the system, which is generating that revenue for you, or you then give back to the community and just say, okay, I'm going to take $2 billion if I take your number, John. The next next three to ten billion dollars that we're earning is going to go back into projects that will lift up the majority of people within the community. Because we understand in that narrative, if we don't do that, that eventually it ends up badly for everybody. And so there's a good reason to do that. Right now, whether we're going to do that or not, I don't know. Right. I just saw Bezos gave who was a hundred million dollars to Dolly Parton. I just go, that's fine. I mean, Dolly Parton is an interesting artist. She does do a lot of philanthropy, but she's rich beyond belief. And so you took $100 million of your riches 
and gave it to her as opposed to, you know, somebody that might be able to use it a little more than she can, right? Yeah, case. given there are a billion people living on less than $2 a day, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's anyway, so I just wanted to finish that, and again, it goes back to the heart of narrative, right? It's, it's not about necessarily greed, although that plays in it, or the natural proclivity of humans to say, I created it, so it's mine. That's all part of our DNA, for sure. But ultimately, if you change the story about success and the culture rewards those that have been through skill and luck, recipients of massive amounts of resource, right? They reward them and say, instead of saying, we're going to make a list of people that have the most money and we're going to, we're going to really fixate on the top 10. And that's who we're going to say are the cool people, the one that have the most toys. We're going to basically say, did you make use of I'll just say this, 80% of what was generated. And we're going to celebrate the fact that you put that back into the system to basically raise the boats of, of more people. That's a narrative. That's a narrative that you could change to that would have just as much power as the one right now, which is the winners get everything. Well, how can we make capitalism generative, sharing the wealth, circulating the wealth, the intellectual wealth, the spiritual wealth, the material wealth? Circulate it, circulate it, circulate it, and uh, not just because eventually you have what happened in, in Nazi Germany. Things start going to hell. Everybody's starving and fighting in the streets. And all the, the millionaires, which they were back then, they weren't billionaires, I don't think. Anyway, said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll support this Hitler guy and he'll take care of, you know, the rabble. Well, he took care of them, too. So that's that's the problem. If I, And I agree with you. If we don't deal with this. And there's so many issues you brought up, David, and I still struggle with what do I do as an individual? And part of what I do, I live I live in the South, very conservative, 62% of the population is African-American, the city where I live. So I listen a lot. I connect a lot. I try to understand and just listen. And then the ability, I think Jeff Salzman said this, to be able to reflect back to people what they believe in their own language so that they think that you understand them more than they understand themselves is a great ability to to cultivate and gives us more perspective and more compassion and more to accept people where they're at. And then how do we go from there together to get where we need to go? And I, yeah, yeah, I think this has been very educated for me, David. Well, let me, let me take a sort of, we'll finish with a little bit of an integral frame on this, right? So what I've experienced since I got out of the integral life bubble, right, which is a bubble, right? And lots of great people, but it's, you know, it tends to have its own language. It has its own, you know, feelings about its superiority in terms of its view and so on. And what we've said, I'll just address something you just said, John, and then I'll finish with sort of an analysis of what to do. So in the, in the, you know, I'm well-versed like you both are that to the narratives that Integral puts forward, right? And one of them around the stages that, and this is going to be unfair and Ken probably is turn, will turn over when I say this. And he may say, you got that completely wrong. But ultimately, when I look at the narrative within the community, which is what was I was facilitating for one of us, you know, for 10 years, is that this, this is this notion, if we just talked differently use different language to talk to traditional and modern, if in fact we are postmodern, then there's a much greater chance of success because they will understand or something, you know, the thing that we go, that we want to, you know, move forward together on, right? My experience has not been that. And particularly around the political arena, that if people feel that you're just changing your language so that it's something that they, you know, you think they approve of. There's a certain lack of authenticity in that, that they pick up. They just, they just said, well, I mean, what do we say about politicians, right? They come and talk to a seniors group and they say one thing. They come and talk to a group of students and they say another thing. Now, neither one of those things could be wrong, but, but the stories are basically calculated for the audience that they're talking to. And most of the time, why politicians in general have very low approval ratings in this country, right? I mean, it's a joke when we keep talking about how low Biden's approval ratings are, 
show me another politician that has higher ratings. They're horrible. I mean, the Supreme Court, I think, now is at 16% approval. Congress has always been about like 4 or 5% approval. Presidents will range from a low where Trump is at 39 on up to maybe 48% in the best of Obama's days. We don't trust politicians. We don't. And why don't we? Because we think they're just coming and telling us stories and they will get our vote and then we'll never hear from them again. Look at the look at the Latinos and the people of color that are now voting in greater numbers, not not huge differently, but greater numbers for Trump and his candidates, right? Why the, would they do that? They're going to be the ones that catch the violence of, of that story about who they are and what they should be able to do. And, and basically, they're just saying because the Democrats come and talk to us every four years and then just disappear. They... They never come back and actually do anything that makes a difference for us. So what, guess what? I can see that he's challenged or disturbed or whatever, but I'm going to give him a shot because you guys don't pay attention to us, right? You don't. So we don't. So generally, from with politics, we we don't believe anyway, right? And so ultimately, um, where where I think you have to go, and I'm going to use the quadrants as sort of a way to sort this out. So what to do, right? I mean, certainly we're all in that soup. And I look at progressive people that that even in this election, the three things they said you could do, which are not wrong, was you could vote, you could give money to a candidate, or you could volunteer to either promote a candidate or work on the elections. Those are the three things you could do, right? In spite of whether you did all that, right? The election still turned out pretty much the same as two years ago, which is just a minuscule difference between the stories, right? Less than 2% difference, right? And, and so, you, so you say, all right, well, I did everything that I know how to do, that's easy to do, right? That is offered to me to do. But the question I have to ask myself, and this is the interior upper left, as you guys understand, that interior individual story is that do I look out into the exterior world and see the conditions to such, ex such an extent that I have to revisit what I'm willing to do to try to make it better? Is it enough for me just to vote, to volunteer for a campaign or give money to somebody or an initiative? And you can say there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if you continue to see the stagnation and the polarization where we're not getting to the problems we have and everybody's just at each other on social media. If that's what this country continues to be, you may have to ask yourself a question is that in these circumstances, in this transition that is taking place, is there something more that I have to do? And one way I would put it is, can I give up my comfort zone? Am I willing to give up my comfort zone? And if so, how much? to actually go campaign for the country that I want, right? And that said, I'm saying that to everybody, not just liberals, right? So that's it. So you, first of all, in that upper left, you have to say, I mean, the question is, I'm feeling something, is that real, right? Is it real to ask the question, is democracy in trouble? Or is that just the progressive fear, right? That if Trump gets in control, somehow we're not going to be a democracy anymore. Is that just some fear that's being promoted out of the progressive side, right? And you go, well, if I think that that's not true, that that actually there are, I can measure certain things and all the rest of it, the question is, do I, do I, can I change my story to match that? Whereas before it was enough for me to vote, volunteer, give money, whatever. These conditions require a, a more of a response than that. And the question is, am I willing for all of us that live these comfortable lives, am I willing to give up what's comfortable for me to a point to actually take other steps? And we can talk about that on another day, right? That's the upper left. Upper right, obviously, is how am I expressing that, right? So I just kind of went through. So if I have a story, how am I expressing my interior individual story? I'm voting, I'm giving money, I'm volunteering. Those would be three things on the progressive side, right? Now, on the MAGA side, this is going to be a little radical. It could include I'm going to the Capitol and I'm going to storm Congress. 
That's what they did, right? They got out of their comfort zone. They didn't have any idea when they ran up the stairs whether they were going to be shot or not. They really literally list, you know, risked their lives to follow the story that they could somehow stop the election of Joe Biden, right? Strong narrative, right? That put that many people in harm's way. So, so that so you have to ask those questions. And then culturally, you have the same questions, right? You know, culturally, which story am I contributing to? Which story do I feel comfortable with? And right now, as I said to you in the beginning, I'm not comfortable with the Democrats or the Republican story, really. I don't think I don't see either one of them capable of activating the 65 to 70 percent of Americans that generally agree on the principles of democracy that we want. They the Democrat, I mean, the MAGA story basically doesn't attract. Well, in the midterms, it didn't attract many independents and it didn't attract liberals for sure. The progressive story, the Democratic story does better with independence, but I have heard it over and over and over again from reasonable, moderate Republicans, whether they are Republicans anymore because they don't recognize their party anymore. They will say the same thing that I heard on the tour with the evangelicals. David, the, the, I agree with you that we've somehow are spinning out of control and moderate thought and ideas, both conservative and liberal need to come together into a unified force to address that. I agree with you on that. But when I look at the Democrats' narrative and the candidates they're putting up, they don't include me. That's a problem. That's a that's a challenge for Democrats going forward is that as much as they say they want moderate Republicans to come support them, the numbers don't support that. They either don't vote or they end up you know, voting for a candidate that they are lukewarm about and we see the results that we do. So that's, so to me, what to do is a big question. What vital signs is designed to do is not to tell you what to do. It's simply going to address that first question. And we put it this way, am I crazy? Because I'm feeling crazy, right? I'm feeling like something really basic is coming apart in this country. Is that just my fears or is there actually some evidence, you know, that backs that up and I should be more concerned as a result of that evidence? And so what Vital Signs does, and we're releasing the first uh, what we call scan today, we do it every two weeks. This is the first one since the midterms. That'll be released tomorrow. And how do people find Vital Signs? What what are we talking about here? Vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. It's that simple. And what you'll see is you'll see the master meter that will give you an indication in, in, in from, you know, from moderate to extreme danger, right? You'll see which way the, the arrow is pointing based on our analysis of these 10 characters, based on the news stories uh, that we're telling about all that. And all that does is just to say, here is an integrated view, because one of the problems that we try to address is you can have strong feelings about the abortion issue, as an example, and you can spend your entire life working on that issue. But the question of whether we're going to have a democracy in this country is much bigger than just the abortion issue, right? So we try to provide an integrated storyline that basically says we're taking these 10 factors and we're looking at all of them and here's the master score as a result of that. And you can look at what is informing that for us. So this has been great. I really appreciate it, both John and Roger, that we've had mostly me talking. I went on today. <laughs> Glad that you guys are interested in this subject because we just went through another exercise. These midterms have not sorted themselves out and probably won't till mid-2023. And we're going to see what both parties learned, if anything, from the results that come. So just to kind of wrap this up, vital signs, if, if you're concerned about this going forward, and even if you're not, even if even if you're a progressive, and I'm I'm running into this story already, right? See, David, you were way too alarmist. The system adjusted perfectly, and we're moving on. Democracy is saved. And I'm going, okay. <laughs> I'm I we should have a conversation about that, and we will have a conversation about that as it continues. But literally, the results of this is not democracy was saved. It wasn't a clear outcome. So it wasn't A, which was, oh my God, mega Republicans are going to take over everything and we're headed toward a non-democracy. 
and it wasn't B, which was Democrats have basically killed that argument and have restructured democracy so that we're cool going forward. That's it. It's not going to be threatened by people that want a minority to rule this country. <laughs> As usual these days, it's not A and it's not B, it's C. And C is still to be determined. But what I can tell you about it so far is that we've only begun to see whatever the result of this is going to be and then how that's going to play, as I said, how the parties are going to make their adjustments for the presidential election two years from now, right? And as a result of that, even if you're going, I'm just going to say this, even if you're going to sleep, those of you in this audience, and saying, I am so tired of listening to all that stuff. I did. I voted. Seems like we're okay. I'm going to go back to, I'm not, sleep is, is a derogatory term. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. I don't need to worry about this, right? Or I will worry about it two years from now when we have the presidential election. What I'm, vital signs, what it can do for you, if you want to go do that, which is a legitimate reaction to all this, is that you can just check in every two weeks. We do all the work, right? You can check in every two weeks and we'll give you a little picture of what is emerging as a result of this midterm and then what ultimately the parties are doing as we head toward the presidential election. And you don't have to spend any more than two or three minutes. You'll just get a, you'll just get a blip. And if that thing is headed up to extreme danger, you might want to push in a little bit more and just see why it is that our analysis is that way. But Vital Signs is designed to do all this narrative analysis and work and basically try to present a very simple outcome that you can choose to take on face value, like we do with the number of cases of COVID and say, well, I need to be careful or I need to be less careful when I go out, given the number of cases, and just simply say, should I be concerned or not concerned based on this? It will give you that reading every two weeks. And it will also have all the analysis if you say, oh, my God, is that what's going on? Either way, you can dive into it and move on. And it's vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. And what we're learning, what, this is my invitation to your audience. There is something we haven't talked about today, and that is the nature of us in this audience, right? Why is this podcast called Deep Transformation? Why is it that John's work and your work, Roger, within the integral framework, have so focused on this audience that is in interested in personal and cultural transformation to something that we don't have right now, that is something that we think is more generative, for lack of a better word, right? And that's not the majority of the population. That is a particular population that has decided to do the work for whatever reason. And so a discussion to have now that we've sort of laid the groundwork for all this, and we'll know more in a couple months, would be if I am one of these people, which all three of us are, right? That we 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 wouldn't have spent time with Ken or all the things that we've done, all the books that you've written, Roger, all the work that you've done, John, with a all variety of issues, right? We including addiction, we wouldn't have done that if we were just cruising along, happy with everything and happy with our lives and whatever. We chose to make a decision to go into these fields which is asking these personal and cultural transformational questions. Now, in a, in a culture that is going through this extreme, a transition from one thing to the next, as a someone who is interested in on the path of personal development, how do I address that? Because one thing I've heard in Boulder, where I am, is that I just sit on the cushion Nothing wrong with this. I just sit on the cushion, quiet myself, and I don't watch the news. And I feel much better. I get it. <laughs> you would. But I would suggest that even for those of us that are you know, really focused on personal transformation and all the things that that brings, there are times in the cultural's evolution, which we are in right now, from Ken's work, from everybody else's work, we are making this transition. And those times, which are spikes in activity, right? It is not change incrementally. It is actually rather sudden and big change that we have to do more than just look to our own 
sort of like, this is the bubble I live in and the rest of it, I can just sort of shut out and not do that. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that's an interesting conversation from the perspective of those of us that are interested in personal development. Am I willing to move outside my comfort zone that I have created within all of that work to address what could be some fairly serious problems in this country about whether we're going to have democracy or not? And that question is entirely congruent with the the deepest understandings of transformation, for example, from the world's contemplative traditions, that one does not do this practice for oneself alone, because that just reinforces egocentricity. Yes, one does learn and grow and mature and clean up and grow up as much as one can, but it needs to be in a service of a much, much larger well-being than merely our own, and ultimately needs to be in the service of the welfare and awakening of all. And you have given us, David, some beautiful tools for the analysis of our cultural condition and what's needed at this time. I love the fact, and John and I both love the fact that you are are looking at the deeper narratives which we are spinning, but also which are spinning us and perhaps spinning us out of control, both as a collective and even as a democracy. This is incredibly important work. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, and for all you do. Well, thank you both. And I look forward to sort of processing as we are doing on a daily basis right now, what the results of this midterm. And that as we start the journey toward the next political election and all the things that are happening in addition to that, you know, circling back at some point and, and taking this transformational view and to say, as someone that's interested in that, then, is there more that I should be doing than what I'm doing at the moment? And that's an interesting question for all of us. That is a question for us to sit with <laughs> and stand with and work with. <laughs> David, Thank you both. thanks so much. Thank you, Thank David. You guys. All right. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.